Our text this morning can be found in John's Gospel. Earlier on the same day as this text, Mary Magdalene found an empty tomb. And so we are returning to that story. It's in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. It's verses 19 through 29, and it's page 989 in your pew Bible. Listen now for the word of the Lord. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out in your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, Mary told them directly, I have seen the Lord, but they didn't believe her. Not Peter, not John, or James, or Andrew, or Nathaniel, or Philip, and not Thomas, certainly none of them. They had lost Judas, they lost Jesus, and Thomas was right all along. It's not that Thomas didn't believe Jesus could do amazing things. He'd seen it firsthand. After Jesus' friend Lazarus had died and Jesus called him out of the tomb, that moment threw the Pharisees into a full-on tailspin, and Thomas right then knew things weren't going to end well. Sarcastically, Thomas called it. Why don't we just head into Jerusalem now so we can all die with Jesus? Now, maybe Thomas was a pessimist, but I'd say he's more of a realist. After all, Up until this point, the entire thing had been an epic failure. Now they were cowering in the shadows of an upper room, the door is shut, and they're full of fear. Fear. Fear of being arrested or assaulted or crucified. Fear of being judged or shamed or excluded from their community. Fear of being discovered or seen for who they truly were and what they'd done or what they'd left undone. Fear. Fear of moving on or letting go or changing. 
And what does it mean to become so disappointed and disillusioned that you would be unwilling or even unable to risk again? What does it mean to trust that God has called you for a purpose and a future beyond yourself, only then to have that dream never realized or shattered or stolen away like a thief in the night? What does it mean for us to go all in, fully devoted, committed, trusting, only then to be devastated by loss or failure as the door shuts and the lock turns? You ever been behind that door? I told you this would happen. How could you have been so stupid? How could I have been so stupid? If only we knew. I should have known better. We've all been in that space. But obviously, Jesus doesn't let the disciples stay there for too long before he shows up. The problem is, Thomas wasn't with him, any of them that day. He missed it completely. And then for the next seven days, it's all his friends can talk about. They'd heard what Mary said. They'd seen Jesus' hand and Jesus' side, and yet they were still gathering in that room together, trying to get their heads around it. How is it that we can experience God's love and grace and presence one day and then still doubt it the next? Sometimes it's tempting to isolate ourselves and shut the world out in despair. Certainly that has been the case for many of us these last two or three years. And so I don't really think Thomas is bullheaded, and I don't think he's pessimistic. I don't think that he means to be a know-it-all. I don't think he means to be stubborn. I think his heart is broken. And he's wondering if the whole thing was nothing more than a pipe dream or a fairy tale. I mean, there were promises, and there were hopes, and there were healings, and gatherings, and teachings, and plans. And now, Thomas and the rest of them, they'd been through hell. He can't trust the world around him. He can't trust the religious institution. He can't trust the government. His friendships are strained. Mistakes were made. And nothing feels safe, much less normal. And at this point, maybe he's wondering if the whole thing was a lie. Because everything he experienced with Jesus along the way and everything he thought he knew about God has changed. And for seven long days, he has to sit with that. You see, it's one thing to talk about the gospel. It's one thing to talk about new life after death and the resurrection, but oh, it's another thing altogether to go through it, to let go and to live it, to walk through loss and regret and sin and death, trusting in the promises of the resurrection, that somehow those promises are going to lead to something new and joyful. Even Jesus doubted when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it is right there in that moment for Thomas where he begins to see things differently. You see, if we doubt, then we are expecting something. Doubt is an expression of wanting and hoping that God will indeed show up. Doubt forces our gaze to shift from our own loss to God's movement out in the world. And so the question becomes, what could possibly be so important 
so vital, so life-giving, so powerful, that Jesus, the Son of God, would be murdered, buried, and resurrected for it? What is it that God would insist on to the point of infiltrating and pushing and forcing and imparting and breaching and breaking and reaching for? What could it be through locked doors and thick walls, through cold and broken hearts, through illnesses and regrets and sin? What could it be that is so important that Jesus keeps coming back over and over again for the lost sheep and the man living in the tombs and even Thomas? Could it be a wish dream or fantasy or the certainty of an easy life or maybe absolute answers or maybe it's more control? Maybe it's a conflict-free marriage or an escape from reality or prosperity or success or health. Why in the world would Jesus be walking around earth, unrecognizable, presumably with gashes and holes in his body, breaking through locked doors, uninvited, unannounced, over and over again, what could it be? Well, if you read the scripture, it says he came to bring them peace. Peace. Not just any peace. It also says he gave them power. Huh, power, you say? Well, folks like us, we don't like to talk about power, mainly because we have a lot of it, and we don't want to share it, and we don't want to lose it, because if we do, then we may not be in control anymore, and if we're not in control, then we might not be safe, and well, then what? That's what it says. It says he breathed the power of the Holy Spirit on them, Well, hmm. as long as we stay behind the closed doors, we already have power. And so we don't really need Jesus breaking into our closed-off rooms. Those are private. We don't need Jesus interrupting our anxiety and worrying and doubting because we cling to it. You see, we want peace, but we really don't want to give anything up, and we don't want to change. We want control. Do we have the power to leave the dark spaces of our lives behind? Well, that's terrifying. What sort of power is this? Power for what? What do these men have to come to terms with before they head out into the world? The power for what? Well, the power to forgive. That's what it says. It says that they receive the power to forgive. Oh, forgiveness? Man, no wonder those disciples stayed up in that upper room for another seven days. Forgiveness is the hardest kind of work, and yet it matters so much to Jesus that he refuses to quit. Chains are broken, seas are crossed, tombs are emptied, Samaritans are met, weapons are put down, feet are washed, thresholds are breached, scars remain, but the wounds are revealed and they're touched. And we cannot flee this pursuit of Jesus's, and we cannot pretend as if this is not the single most significant call on our lives, the pursuit of reconciliation. Forgiving and being forgiven, you see, is the path 
to peace and wholeness, not just for me and not just for you, but all of humanity. It matters so much that Jesus refuses to quit. There is no heart broken enough, no soul lonely enough, no closet black enough, no bottle of booze or jar of pills large enough, no website or sports obsession tantalizing enough. There is no door thick enough where God's light cannot shine through. And so Jesus comes back a week later to find Thomas. We don't really know if Thomas touched Jesus or not, but in this moment of reunion, Jesus is saying, see, see Thomas, this thing that has happened to me. See how they've punctured my hands and stabbed my side. You see, Thomas, I have been wounded. I have been broken. And so you, Thomas, put your hand on my brokenness, on my wounds. And in my mind, the invitation for Thomas to reach out is, in fact, Jesus' call to reconciliation. You see, forgiveness doesn't erase what happened, but it does help to heal it when we are wounded and when we wound others. Sometimes there are scars that never fully disappear. And so revealing them to each other, showing how we've been hurt, takes courage and trust. And so we aren't talking about the kind of forgiveness where we say, oh, let's just forget about it and pretend like it never happened. I mean, that's not really forgiveness anyway, is it? Now we're talking about the touch my wounds and feel my pain and see that I'm still here with you because I know that you're hurting too. That type of forgiveness, that reveals a way into the future together. You see, forgiveness reconciles our suffering and our brokenness with the loving and consistent God who refuses to abandon us. Now, expect the worst and you'll never be disappointed, right? Wrong. Avoid risk and you'll never be wounded, right? Wrong. Do everything according to plan the right way, and you will never suffer loss or despair, right? Wrong. This story of Thomas and Jesus in the door tells us that it is impossible for us to live and thrive behind our closed doors. And if we hear this Easter message with remorse or regret or shame or guilt for what has been done or what has been left undone, then we learn nothing from the disciples. We learn nothing from Thomas. We have missed the point of the resurrection altogether. Even if our belief or our comfort or our happiness may hang in the balance from time to time, our salvation does not. Remember that the tomb was already empty. The resurrection occurred long before, and regardless of Thomas's confession of my Lord and my God, Christ died so that we might lead, uh, meet the living Christ in hope and in confidence, so that we might find the strength and the courage to seize the power bestowed upon us to reconcile our hearts with God and with one another. There are so many misguided reasons we choose to cut ourselves off from one another and from God. So many reasons in this world to doubt. So often our desire is to be alone. But Jesus refuses to leave us alone. Our need is to be found 
and to be comforted and to be seen and to be touched and to be reconciled, to be at peace. Gail O'Day aptly wrote that this story is a parable of grace. You see, Jesus did not chide the disciples. He did not shame them. We call him Doubting Thomas, but I'd wish that we'd given him the name of Hurting Thomas or Grieving Thomas or Confused Thomas because this is not a story about Thomas's doubting any more than this is a story about the other disciples' cowardliness. This is a story about the living Christ and his relentless pursuit of love and grace and his ability to find us behind our closed doors as he says, see how I have suffered and know that I am alive and well, and it's time for you to unlock that door and get on with it. And what else can we do but proclaim, my Lord and my God? Blessed are those who come to believe, but who have not seen. Amen. Let us continue our worship and prayer. Wondrous God, as we stand in the light of your resurrection, and the magnitude of the triumph leaves us in awe and amazement, for your amazing grace and abundant love, we offer our gratitude and praise. God, for the ways you continue to show up in our lives and bless us, we give you thanks. Signs of new life surrounds us in creation, beckoning us to partake. Gathering for worship, celebrating leaders in our church and inspirational Presbyterian women. Surely your goodness is here. Yet, in the celebration of life, we also continue to grieve the state of our world, the illness that lays so many low, the violence of war, and the troubled spirits of those oppressed. God, hear our prayers for peace, for your children are suffering. We question how both of these are true, living between the paradox, doubting and seeking and searching. God, we are earnestly trying most days, trying new things, trying to put one foot in front of the other, trying to part, to part the curtain of indifference instead of pointing fingers in judgment, trying to trust and love even though we can't quite see the whole of it. You remind us that that is the beauty of a life of faith, that we do our best to live into and follow the moments where we see glimpses of you and your goodness. God, fill us with desire to seek you, to build from here, trusting that you are fostering new life within us and around us. We will fall short and we will fail, but that does not mean we are ruined. God, bless the space between, between joy and sorrow, grief and delight, love and heartache, 
confusion and clarity, anxiety and relief. May we see Christ risen and live into the newness of life, looking to your Son, our teacher who taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. At this time, I'd like to invite Peggy Hornberg forward to, for the presentation of the Honorary Life Membership in Presbyterian Women. Good morning. I, I woke up this morning uh, from a dream. I was supposed to be giving this presentation and I got to church without any of my stuff. <laughs> so I had Lib Schumann. I said, you got to do the preaching so I can go home and get that stuff. And then I had to take a ferry to get there. <laughs> so if you think I'm nervous, you're right. <laughs> Since 1966, Selwyn Avenue Presbyterian Church has, has recognized um, women for outstanding service and long service. Um, and and um, 50 women so far have received that honor. Uh, I would like to ask any previous honorees to stand if you're here. I think we should have several. Yeah. <laughs> the, the pin that our honoree will receive is in the shape of a butterfly, and that's a symbol of newness in Christ. A pair of hands represents women who seek to build an inclusive community. A leaf represents growth of our personal and corporate response to Jesus Christ as we nurture our faith. And a dove indicates our work for peace in our own lives and throughout the world. At the center of the design is the cross by which our sins are forgiven. Now let me tell you about our recipient. She joined Selwyn over 20 years ago and has been active since she walked in the door. She's a longtime member of a Presbyterian women's circle, and she has served in many roles. She's a loyal member of a Sunday school class and um, has taken advantage of many of the uh, Bible studies that the ministers have, uh, have presented for us. She's good with numbers and has helped in the finance area for years. She has served two years uh, two terms as an elder, and committee work is no stranger to her. She has served on worship, personnel, finance, and congregational life. She's one of the hidden volunteers who prepares the elements for communion. 
and you'll often find her ushering. She's one of our prayer shawl ministry volunteers, knitting shawls for members undergoing stressful times. She has been a longtime member of the care teams and currently serves as co-chair. I'm sure I've left off some, some of the many things that she has done. This woman is capable, willing, loving, and selfless, and very deserving of this award. And it is indeed my pleasure to present the award to Emily Cox. Thank you, Peggy, and congratulations, Emily. We are so thankful for all of your years of service to this amazing community. Friends, as we see in this, God has abundantly blessed us and called us to be a community that honors each other, to serve each other with joy, and to share our love and resources with one another. So during this time, we, reflect, we ask you to reflect on the way that God may be calling you to use your gifts and talents and resources in this season. Let us go to God with our offerings.
Let us now dedicate our gifts to God. Let us pray. God, you meet our needs and transform us for service. We especially give thanks this day for the service of the PW Women and Emily Cox for their dedication to this community and to the larger church. Accept these gifts as signs of our gratitude and our commitment to witness to Christ's ministry in your world. Amen. There will be punch, there will be finger sandwiches, and there will be cookies. So now, as you leave, go with the love of God and the peace of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and pray that it might bond you to one another and to Almighty God until we meet again. Amen. Christ is alive.